Thank you so much, Sarah. Well, good morning, everybody. And firstly, I just want to say, wow, the glory of the Lord is upon his people in his house this morning. Do you believe it? I mean, it just blesses me and thrills me to look at your faces and to see the work of God taking place in you. Some people who had smiles that were this wide last year have got smiles this wide. Some people that didn't have smiles at all last year have got smiles this wide because God is at work in our lives. He's transforming people. He's taking us out of the mire and the dirt. He's taking us out of our sins. He's setting us free. And he's just manifest in here. And here this morning, I believe God just wants to continue that work. We're in a wonderful series from the book of Galatians on the subject of grace. Grace, it's all about grace. And God is going to continue to take us from glory to glory as we unravel the truths of his word and as we dedicate our lives to him. Do we believe that here this morning? So I've got a word that I'm presenting with some fear and trepidation because it's a massive topic, and I've only been given 90 minutes to speak this morning. (laughs) Just joking. Don't worry, I'll have you out of here by 4 p.m., not a problem. And, you know, there's there's so much that that, that the things that I want to talk about are on every page of the Old Testament, and they're on every page of the New Testament. And it's summarized in this book that we've been going through called Galatians. So this morning, I hope you'll bear with me as I just unpack what I think are some really weighty topics that I'd like us to understand. And I think they're going to unlock the keys to a a lot of understanding of important scriptures that will just cause us to appreciate God in new ways. Don't worry, I'm not going to say anything that's not in line with evangelical doctrine. It's going to be truth, but I think it's going to blow some minds this morning and also set some people free. Is that okay with everybody this morning? Amen. Thank you. Well, do please turn with me before I forget. We are going to read a scripture. It's in Galatians 3. So please turn with me there. And uh, you know that we've been going through a great series. Um, And uh, Lance kicked off a few weeks ago, reminding us that there is nothing we can add to God's grace. Sorry, could you just take ever so slightly a a little bit of reverb out of of my voice? Thank you. Um, Lance reminded us that there is nothing we can add to God's grace. If we do that, it ceases to be grace. Sarah, the week after, gave us a wonderful personal testimony of how she came to faith in Jesus Christ rather than relying on works and and religious efforts and reminded us that we deserve death because of our sins, but God gave us life. And then there was a break. We had care for the family. Martin Nixon was brilliant. And then um, last week, Phil told us, in Christ we are set free, and in him, God's work of grace is finished. It is complete, and we can add nothing to it. Amen. Amen. Now, there's a book um, by a chap called Philip Yancey, which which some of you may have read, and it's called What's So Amazing About Grace? Why the Preoccupation with Grace? And uh, Yancey quotes Christian counselor David Siemens. The two major causes of most emotional problems among evangelical Christians are these. The failure to understand, receive, and live out God's unconditional grace and forgiveness and the failure to give out that unconditional love, forgiveness, and grace to other people. So when we don't understand that God has forgiven us freely on the basis of his great love for us, we will continually struggle under condemnation from sin and feel the need to impress God and to work to earn his forgiveness and our salvation and his approval. Amen. Does that make sense? When we don't understand that God has given us salvation as a free gift, we're trying to pay off our sins. We're trying to pay off the things we've done wrong and do all the right things to make God think, us, think we're ace. Okay. 
Yancey, I took this from Wikipedia, I haven't read the book, but Yancey describes his experiences growing up in a church that despite preaching about grace, did not demonstrate it to others. The church rejected African-Americans, so they were racist, dismissed other Christians on the basis of slightly different beliefs, so there was no unity, and depicted God as tyrannical and vengeful. Yancey writes, I grew up with the strong impression, and some of you may have done too, that a person became spiritual by attending to grey area rules and that church was a place to look good rather than be honest. May I say that is the complete antithesis of the vision that we have here at Coastline Vineyard. We want people to be able to come in honestly and to receive the grace and the love and the mercy and the forgiveness of God because God is good to us. He is not angry with us. Do we need to understand grace or what? So Philip Yancey was concerned about Christians failing to understand God's grace for them, failing to extend that grace to others, and getting bogged down in rulemaking. And that's exactly where the church in Galatia was beginning to get stuck. As we have heard, there was a group called the Judaizers who were infiltrating the early church after Paul and the other apostles had preached the gospel to them. Even the apostle Peter, who was chief of the apostles, got caught up in the fervor, got caught up in the deception, and Paul had to go and rebuke him. Think about that for a moment. The chief of the apostles who walked with Jesus got caught up in a deception because he didn't have a right understanding of the gospel. So obviously the same can apply to us, that we can get caught unawares. So let's be aware this morning. And this deception obviously went to the top of the church and it manifested in these false teachers coming in and trying to get the early church to observe Jewish law most notably the right of circumcision. And we've talked about that a little, we'll talk about it some more. And having got Peter back on track, Paul now has to write this letter to the Galatians to correct their erroneous theology. And this is what the book of Galatians is for the most part about. So we're going to get to the scripture today, it's Galatians chapter 3. My title, if you want one for my message today, is Grace, Christ is the end of the law. That's grace, Jesus Christ is the end of the law. So, Galatians chapter 3, and watch out because Paul is in full flow this morning. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing, if it really was for nothing? Does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? Consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The spirit foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and he announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things, or the woman who does these things, will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law 
by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Say amen. If you can't say amen, say whoo. There's a lot in these scriptures, isn't there? There's a lot of terms that are unfamiliar to us. There's a lot of concepts from the Old Testament. There's a lot of concepts from, from Jewish culture. And, you know, you'd be quite justified in thinking, what on earth is Paul on about? Well, we're going, to, we're going to do our best to unpack some of it this morning and understand what Paul is getting at. And I believe it's going to edify us and set many people free. And the first thing we can draw out from this, is, as we've noted, is that there was a deception going on. Paul says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? He's got you concentrating on the wrong things, got you mesmerized by something that you shouldn't be looking at, got you looking at your mobile phone when the preacher's preaching. I know you don't do that during my, but, you know, some of the others. And it speaks to the fact that not everything that is done in God's name is acceptable to God. God doesn't endorse whatever. God endorses truth. God is in truth, and it's truth that sets us free. And what was coming into the Galatian church was, if you like, Judaism in a Jesus t-shirt. They were beginning to attempt to harmonize the gospel of Jesus Christ with the Jewish faith. And before long, they would begin to airbrush out the things that Jesus had said about being the Son of God and the sacrifice for sins. And they would gradually dial him back to being a great teacher while actually ignoring the truth of the gospel. Amen. And I'm sure some of them were doing it with a good heart. You know, most religious fervor starts out with good intentions. We want to try and get closer to God. We want to try and please God. But it has a wrong basis. It might have a wrong motivation. We're trying to earn God's salvation. Or it's based in something that we've not understood correctly. Or it's based in an outright lie. So it's important to come to truth in order to be set free. So here we are. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine this? It's spreading in Galatia. And it's fresh revelation. And it's setting people free. And one day the phone rings. And it's Steve Croucher. And he says, Jeremy, can you help with the enabling team next Sunday? And he says, yeah, yeah, no problem. What, what would you like me to do? Oh, well, John's, John's got this great revelation. He thinks he's really heard from God on this one. Oh, yeah, tell me more. He wants us to circumcise all the men. <laughs> Help. That's something you pray about, isn't it? That's one of those occasions in which, you know, you, you, you get closer to Jesus running out the back door of the church and coming down to the front. Or imagine instead of the Alpha Course, Holy Spirit Weekend, you have to go on the Circumcision Weekend. Do you think people would sign up for that course? Or you walk into church and see this. Could I have the first slide up, please? Drum roll. <laughs> Alt text for those who can't see it on the screen. Big hello to those who are watching on video, by the way. Alt text. Um, there's a large pair of scissors with the caption, Welcome to God's family, and a smiley face emoji. And this sort of thing was infiltrating the Galatian church through the Judaizers. Literally, they were trying to turn Christians into Jews. And it was tying up the church in unnecessary rules, and it was understandably putting people off from joining. And Paul has to very quickly plead with the Galatians to remember how they came to salvation. Quick, let's have the second slide on screen to erase the memory of the first one. 
Paul says to the foolish Galatians, before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. If we could have that second slide. Can you all see this on my notes? (laughs) This photograph is of the beautiful crucifix above the altar in Westminster Cathedral, which I visited on a brief stop in London a few months ago. Thank you, Ariane. And it depicts Jesus on a glorious cross, painted red with gilt edging, and behind him in the ceiling is a frieze depicting him sat on his throne in heaven with the symbols of the lamb and the lion at his side the Alpha and Omega under his feet, and he is ruling from heaven while the saints in white robes down there on the bottom right praise and adore him. Paul is saying, stop looking at the scissors. Get your eyes back on Jesus. He was the one who was crucified and died to save us. And and see, the, uh, the, the Galatian church was in danger of continuing to put their faith in this right rather than in what Jesus had done. And we're going to get into into the meat of that in, in just a second. The juxtaposition of the two pictures that I just showed you is intentional. When we put our faith in the real Jesus Christ, it is glorious and liberating and it speaks volumes of his truth and power. But when we exchange that for something man-made, we end up with just a joke. We end up with a pale imitation. We end up with something that doesn't come close to the truth that God has for us. And we're trying to put a smile on something that doesn't contain the joy of the Lord. Amen. And, you know, so I was praying about this message, and I got to Friday night, and I thought I could just go through the scriptures that we have in this passage here, but it was just sitting there, and I thought something's not quite coming to life here. So I prayed on Friday night, and I prayed again on Sunday morning, Saturday morning, rather, while I was lying in bed, and what came to me is that the book of Galatians covers these huge topics of scripture that we don't often get a chance to grapple with properly. But today, in this series, we do. So I'd like for us today to get a real understanding of what these topics are in the Old and New Testaments, and as we go along, to tie that into understanding our passage today. So let's begin. In unpacking the truth to the Galatian church, Paul says in Galatians 3 verse 6, consider Abraham. Well, when we're given a command like that, I'd like to be obedient. So let's, let's do what Paul says and consider Abraham for a few minutes and then go on to some of the other major points of the Old Testament in order to understand what Paul is talking about when, when he refers to these things. Phil talked about Abraham last week, so I'd like to build on that. In Genesis chapter 12, many of you will be familiar with the story. God calls a man called Abram, who is living in a heathen land where nobody knows God, And at this point, he's 75 years old and he has no children. And God speaks one day to this man and says, get ready to go to a land that I will call you into. And he makes him a promise. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So it starts with a promise to a man who has no children, a wife with a barren womb, a situation that doesn't look like it can change, and God is speaking into this. So first we have the promise, I will make you into a great nation, I will bless you, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Secondly, there's a covenant. In Genesis chapter 15, God says to Abraham, I know you're worried about how you're going to have children, Abram. Come outside, look up to the stars and try to count them. And he says, you see how many stars there are? So shall your offspring be. You're a man with no children, but I'm promising you, you're going to have more children than you can count. At this point, the key verse that Paul picks up in Galatians 3 is Galatians 
is, is, is in Galatians 3, and it's also in Genesis 15:6. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Abraham put his faith in God, and what God says is, because, Abram, you have trusted my promise, I'm going to declare you righteous. Up to that point, Abram was a sinner. He didn't know God. He sinned just like the rest of us. But God said, you've put your faith in my promise, Abram. I'm going to declare you righteous. What an incredible status. And this works for us too today, and we're going to explore that. God then outlines a covenant in Genesis 15 to bring Abram into the land, the land he has promised. God does this by leading him to make a sacrifice of some animals. And what's important here is that at this point, the covenant becomes a covenant in blood. It was made because Abram sacrificed the animals to the Lord. He walked between them. Then the Spirit of God came and declared the glory of the Lord. A covenant was made, and it was made in blood. And these are key terms this morning. And thirdly comes the formalization of the full covenant. We're getting close to Galatians now. Here comes the formalization of the full covenant with the symbol of the covenant. God gives Abram the new name Abraham, and he also gives Abraham the covenant of circumcision. You were wondering when I was going to get to it. Here we go. In Genesis 17, Abraham and all the men in, in his household have to be circumcised as the covenant people of God. And every male baby in his household who is born in the future will have to be circumcised when they are eight days old. So already this is a fundamental building block of the, of the history of the Old Testament, of the history of the Jewish nation, and leading right up into the New Testament and, and our times. So I'm not going to ask anybody to put their hands up because I don't want to embarrass anybody, but do we know what we're actually talking about here when we talk about circumcision? Circumcision is the act of removing the foreskin from a head of the man's penis, and it is practiced, as we know, in Judaism and also for health matters. See, that didn't hurt a bit, did it? Any man who is not circumcised, God says to Abraham, will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. The act of circumcision was absolutely key to remaining in covenant with the Lord. So if you're looking forward to getting to heaven and asking God, you know, Lord, what is it with all this circumcision business? We're going to understand it today, okay? Circumcision here is the symbol of the covenant. It's not the point of the covenant, it's the symbol of the covenant. Let's, let's take some easy ground. When you get married, you exchange rings. The point of getting married is not to put a ring on your finger so you can run around saying, hey, look at my ring. How much is it worth? How, how big is it? How many carats of gold are in it? The point of the ring is to demonstrate that the covenant has taken place. And when you get married... I was going to use John and Alice, but they're not here. I don't know why the leadership always is away from church when I'm preaching. There's, there's something going on there. <laughs> Fortunately, my very best friends, Stuart and Jane, are in the second row. And <laughs> it works with John and Alice. I can't remember the word. <laughs> Stuart. Augustus. Ludwig. Chalmers. Sorry, I'm only reading from the order of service. Do you take Jane, Camellia, Frankincense, Jones, to be your lawfully wedded wife, to have and to hold, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer? They're, they're agreeing that they still do. This is, this is a beautiful moment here. Uh, <laughs> to have and to hold from this day forth till, till death shall you part. Marriage is a covenant. 
It's not a contract. You see, a contract is made... I've studied law, and I'm going to unpack a little bit of legal study today. I've studied law for four years in two countries, and I've studied contract law, law of trust, criminal law, all this kind of stuff. The Bible is a wonderful legal system, and it just, it just blows my mind how many wonderful laws God has put in there. Marriage is not, a, is not a contract. We talk about a marriage contract that you sign, but it's not a contract, it's a covenant. In a covenant, I go to work for Phil... And there is a consideration between us. And I say, Phil, in consideration of you paying me £2,000 a month, I will do data entry and lightweight admin work for you, and I'll gossip over the water cooler, and I'll steal post-it notes from the stationery cupboard. Okay? That, that's your contract with your employer. Okay? And that can be breached. If I steal too many post-it notes, you say, right, Jeremy, enough of that, you're out the door. But the covenant of marriage is not based on performance. It's not based on how hard either spouse works. Can you imagine this work with John and Alice? Can you imagine when John realized I'm called to the ministry and goes to Alice, babe, I'm called to be a pastor, and she says, well, you'll never be able to support my lifestyle on a pastor's salary. I'm leaving you for somebody who earns £10,000 a month. After taxes. You see, that contract is based on performance, but covenant says we are joined together in holy matrimony, What God has put together, let no man separate. We are committed to one another on the basis of what we have promised, not on the basis of what we perform. Amen? Some of you are beginning to get chills because you know what's coming. And circumcision is a multi-layered symbol of the pact between God and man, the covenant between God and man. Here are some reasons why. I'm sure it's not exhaustive. Other theologians will come out with more than I'm able to provide, but we've only got an hour and a half this morning. Circumcision, a multi-layered symbol of the pact between God and man. Firstly, it affects one of the most intimate and sensitive parts of a man's body, symbolizing total commitment and belonging. Amen? Secondly, circumcision touches the reproductive organs, symbolizing not only does this person belong to God, but his spouse and their children, the generations that follow, will belong to God and be in covenant relationship with him also. Amen. So this is how the the, the nation of Israel grows in covenant with God, generation by generation, every generation dedicated at birth to God and at the point of reproduction, dedicated to God. And it speaks of a future of blessing. It speaks of God's eternal intentions. God is looking down the line of history and saying, this is going to endure. Circumcision, thirdly, was a matter of health and hygiene, both for the man himself and for his wife. All the more so in the desert regions where the nation of Israel wandered and explored while God was giving them the law and bringing them to their own land. Hence, it reduced the opportunities for infection and not only did away with some of the health risks themselves, but also it avoided the ceremonial uncleanness that would occur with an infection of that nature. You see, anybody who had an infection, whether it was a skin disease or a spot with pus in it, according to the wonderful laws in Leviticus, I'm sure we're all going to go home and read after this, would be separated from God's presence for a while until they could deal with a period of uncleanness and they had to go through ritual washings in order to be accepted into the presence of God and worship him. And so God is protecting, in a way, his people from this kind of uncleanness. Okay, it doesn't sound so uncivilized once you get into the topic, does it? 
Fourthly, you can say amen to that if you want, I don't care. Um, Fourthly, circumcision was a blood covenant. It's more than a legal contract. Now, in biblical times, a legal contract could be sealed by one party taking off their sandal and putting it in the hand of the other. So I'm not going to take it off because it's got laces. Phil's agreed to employ me for £2,000 a month, and he's taken my sandal. Thank you very much. We see this in the book of Ruth, exemplified, um, that Boaz does that when he agrees to be Ruth's kinsman redeemer. Don't walk out, it's going to get even better. (laughs) I knew I'd lose somebody when I talked about circumcision. But the covenant goes beyond this, this business of the sandal and the consideration that's given for the contract. We've already talked about the rings. Um, and, and the circumcision, when a Jewish man is circumcised and makes his blood covenant with God when he is eight days old, and any man who wished to become a member of the Jewish nation in later life had to be circumcised in order to be accepted among God's people. Paul himself said, as the ultimate of Jews, the ultimate of Pharisees, I, Paul, have all kinds of reasons to be confident in my flesh because before I became a Christian, I was circumcised on the eighth day. And he lists a load of other religious things that he'd done as well. You with me so far? It gets even deeper. Are you ready for deeper? Fantastic. The Jewish man then includes his wife in a blood covenant. So we've got Abraham making a blood covenant with God. Then the covenant of circumcision is a blood covenant. The Jewish man then includes his wife in a blood covenant when they're married. Now, if you've been watching too many horror films, you might think, oh, blood covenants, you know, that's witchcraft and weird stuff and all that kind of thing. Forget all that. This is God's righteous way of doing things that we're talking about. Deuteronomy 22 talks about how a man might have suspicions about his wife, and if he did not find proof of their virginity on their wed- of her virginity on their wedding night, she could be punished by stoning to death. Now, don't get alarmed. That's not something we're expected to do now, and I'll get to why that is in a moment. Because what the bridegroom and the bride's family were expecting was that when the husband and wife come together in sexual union for the first time on their wedding night, the hymen in the bride would be broken and blood would be shed over the man. So he's already had bloodshed at the point of circumcision. Now there's this bloodshed when husband and wife come together in holy matrimony. They make a blood covenant in the same way that God made a blood covenant with Abraham and he makes a blood covenant with the Jewish males. Are you seeing how this is binding and that the promises of God are binding and how committed to his people God is that he would make a blood covenant at each stage? And if this woman had entered into a blood covenant with another man, she had sinned. And that was why it was so important when we read about the birth of Jesus in the New Testament. Under Jewish law, Joseph needed to hear from God that Mary was still a virgin when she was pregnant with Jesus because otherwise he would not be in a position to make that blood covenant with her. She'd already given it away to somebody else. Now please understand... We're not talking about this to bring condemnation to anyone. You know, if you feel guilt for for something that you've done sexually in the past, we're not here to condemn you. Everybody is invited to come and receive the forgiveness of the Lord. We are about restoring lives. And again, when I'm talking about people smiling, I know so many of you have been through all kinds of things that were hurtful, all kinds of things that you had regret for, but Jesus has washed us clean from. Amen? Amen. So the covenant of Abraham is sealed with blood. 
The covenant a Jewish man had with God as a son of the nation of Israel is sealed with blood. The covenant between husband and his wife is sealed with blood. And the covenant between Jesus Christ and the church is sealed with blood. Look at this crucifixion photo, the cross painted red to signify the spilt blood of Jesus. Colossians 1 verses 19 to 20 says, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, that's Christ, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things in heaven, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. How do we enter into that reconciliation with God? Through works? through being circumcised, through offering sacrifice. No, Paul is saying. In Galatians 3, verses 5 to 7, he tells us, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law and get circumcised and observe feasts and fasts and sacrifices? No. Consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. All we have to do is put our faith in God because that's all Abraham had to do. He achieved right standing with God not because he was religious, he was pagan. Not because he was the most knowledgeable, he didn't know God. Not because he was the most compassionate or or the best at anything. Abraham believed God and God said, because you have put faith in me, I'm giving my righteousness to you. And that's what's happened on the cross. Jesus takes our sins and we receive the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus by faith. We don't have to go through the acts. And Paul is saying, you know, those who believe are the children of Abraham, Galatians 3 verse 7. He wanted them to realize where they were going wrong and to walk in the way of Abraham, receiving God's promise of salvation by faith and being set free from the works of the flesh. Amen. By the way, Abraham finally had his son Isaac when he was 100 years old and Sarah, his wife, was 90 Does God do miracles amongst us and in Abraham because we observe the law or because we believe what he said? Amen. We can't earn it. And so the Judaizers who had infiltrated the Galatian church were trying to take people all the way back to the days of the Old Testament, the Jewish men being circumcised, and they were adding works and deeds and religious acts that don't achieve anything. And if that happens, as as Phil finished with last week, um, Paul says, then Christ died for nothing if righteousness could be gained through the law. Lance told us, grace plus anything equals what? (laughs) Nothing. Thank you, Sarah. Grace plus anything equals nothing. Maybe I said it differently from the way Lance said it. I don't know. Um, I was on board a plane a few weeks ago. I flew up to Edinburgh. Now, if I'd sat on that plane and tried blowing really hard, would that have helped the plane take off? If I tried running, sprinting down the gangway as the plane was going along the runway, would that have helped it get into the air? No. What if I flapped my arms? Could I add any lift or any thrust or any momentum or any velocity to that aeroplane? No. So my effort on board the plane, plus the plane, is a waste of time, okay? All I have to do is relax and sit back in my seat and let the pilot do what he's paid to do, and let the plane carry me. Isn't that like what we've been given in God? That we cannot add anything to the works of salvation? That we cannot add a circumcision or a blood sacrifice to what Jesus did on the cross? That we can't add our piety or our efforts or our compassion or our giving to the poor? Many of these may be good things, but they don't earn our salvation for us. Because nothing, here's the conundrum, nothing can blot out our sins. It needs Christ. Trying to change our behavior won't do it. 
Changed behavior is the fruit of a renewed heart and soul that comes with faith in Jesus Christ and with being filled with the Holy Spirit, which is also a big topic in this book. I'm sure we'll hear more about it. I had an exchange on Facebook yesterday with a guy who was struggling to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And at one point he wrote, well, you know, I'm trying to give up chewing tobacco. And I said, the Holy Spirit is not waiting for you to clean up your act and achieve some level of behavior before he's willing to live inside you. Amen? The Holy Spirit helps us overcome sin. He can't help us overcome if we won't let him help. Am I right? And then, you know, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, but the, the Holy Spirit is the one who wants to come in and clean it up. I mean, has anybody ever restored a house or refurbished a house? You're very slow at lifting your arms this morning. You're all okay. Do you need to, do you need to do some aerobics? I helped a friend restore a house a few years ago. It was wonderful. And just to come in and completely gut the place and change it and, and make it into something new and habitable. And that's what the Holy Spirit wants to do in us. I'm aware of time, so I'm going to try and uh, just summarize one or two things here. I want, to, I want us to understand how we get from this Old Testament full of circumcision and sacrifices and laws to the New Testament. How do the Old Testament and the New Testament interact? How does it affect us? And as I've said, I'm fascinated by the law that we find in the Bible. You can find all kinds of laws, health and safety law, agricultural law, family law, criminal law, legal systems. It's all there provided for by God. And it gives the ceremonial laws, the rules for temple worship, for the selection of the priests, for ritual cleansing. There are food laws that the Jews had to observe. We're aware that Jewish people won't eat pork, they won't eat shrimp, because God had forbidden certain foods for them because they were unclean. And all of this ceremonial law is necessary at that time for the Holy Spirit because it is what enab enables a sinful people to approach a holy God and live as his chosen people in relationship with him. But the downside is they're continually having to offer sacrifices. Hebrews says it is in year after year the high priest has to enter into the Holy of Holies and offer sacrifices for the sins of the people because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. You see, the blood of the sacrifices that was offered in the Old Testament only ever covered your sin. It covered your sin for that period of time. And the next year when you came to the temple to worship God again, oops, you know you sinned, you knew you were a sinner, you'd done things you weren't proud of that year, and you have to offer the same sacrifices again. So you're, trying, you're getting close to God, or as close as you can, but you're in this cycle where sin is ever-present. Jesus has broken the cycle. How did he do that? Let's just read Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. And that sounds strange to us. You know, firstly, the law is supposed to be bringing people closer to God, but now it seems those who rely on observing the law are under a curse. Is that catch-22 or what? It's supposed to be helping you get to God, but now, and it's supposed to be a blessing, but now it's a curse. Why is that? Because it's impossible to do everything that's written in the book of the law. It's impossible to fulfill all God's commandments. There were 613 of God's commandments in the law in the Old Testament, and then in the days of Jesus, along came the Pharisees and added many more thousands of regulations to that. Because what does law produce? Well, two things. What does law produce? Firstly, it produces more laws, because you're 
making more laws to try and keep the laws and stop from breaking the laws, and I don't want to break that law, and I don't want to break that law, and I don't want to break that law, and you just end up bound in laws. The other thing it produces is lawyers. I nearly became one. Praise God that I didn't. Got the degree, didn't get the professional qualifications. A life was saved when I decided not to, uh, not to pursue law as a career. <laughs> Please don't come to me with your parking tickets and your landlord and tenant disputes. I won't know how to help you. Um, and this law was a weight on the people, and no one was justified by it, Galatians goes on to say in, verse, in chapter 3, verse 11, because the righteous will live by faith. You see, even after all that law, what God wanted from people was faith. And it also talks about circumcised hearts, hearts that have been set apart from God and were following his ways. Not just bodies that were set apart for God. So we're really coming into land now. Um, Paul says in Romans 7.21, here's the problem with the law. If you want to understand Galatians, read the first 10 chapters of Romans. Um, Lance gave us his homework of reading a chapter of uh, Galatians each day, each week that we're going through this series. I'm giving you my homework. Read the first 10 chapters of Romans because it is a very expansive explanation of what's going on here in the book of Galatians. And so Paul says in Romans chapter 7, verse 21, I find this law at work. Here's the problem with the law. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. In my inner being, I delight in God's law, i.e. I want to please God, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. So he's trapped in sin, he keeps sinning, he can't stop it, he can't find a way to stop, and he says, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Because what the law was designed to do was to make us conscious of our sin. The whole point of the history of the nation of Israel was to demonstrate, yes, you're the people of God, but by keeping laws, you cannot possibly attain to the level of righteousness that God requires in order for us to be completely holy. This is why they had sacrifice to cover their sins. They talk about remission of sins, um, paying a debt. You're trying to cover a debt, but the debt keeps mounting up in this case until we come to Jesus. Jesus is what's known, if I've got the theological terms right, as a propitiation for sins, a one-time payment. And Jesus, according to Romans chapter 3, provides atonement for sins. The word atonement, the at-one-ment, the, the setting of man in union with God is what Jesus Christ achieves on the cross. So Paul says, how am I going to be set free from sins? He says, finally, do you know what? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Sarah said a few weeks ago when she was speaking, she said, I was trying everything, trying to be more religious, trying to be less sinful, trying to stop taking drugs before lectures, trying to stop drinking you know, in, in between meals or whatever it was, and just not succeeding, were you, Sarah? And what did you finally say? God, I cannot do this by myself. And that was the moment that salvation became real to you. Like the thief on the cross, like Abraham, it's the moment at which we just come to God and say, all of God is my faith, God. You know, some of you, I bet if we asked you how you became a Christian, you'd say, I didn't have all the theology figured out. I couldn't name you four reasons why I need to be saved. All I was able to say was, Jesus, I know I need you. And that was the faith, right? That was the moment in which you came to faith that saved you. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Sarah believed God, and it was credited to her as righteousness. Andy believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. All of you guys have believed God. 
and it was credited to you as righteousness. Amen. So here we go. Here's the crux of Galatians chapter, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree or a pole, as that version has it. Jesus was taken outside the city walls to a hill near the rubbish dump. It's the place where the rubbish was burned, a fire called Gehenna that never burned out. And there, all of the unclean waste from the city of Jerusalem was burned. The bandages from someone's sores that were ritually unclean. The bedding that a leper had lain on. The rags that the women had used to keep themselves clean each month before they came back into ritual purity. Are you getting the picture? Jesus took all of our uncleanness upon himself on the cross, outside the city of God's people, rejected in the place where the rubbish was destroyed. Circumcision is no longer necessary and religious works are no longer necessary for our salvation because Jesus has redeemed us from the curse of needing to keep a law that we were incapable of keeping. Isn't that liberating this morning? We have been seated in heavenly places with Jesus Christ. We are raised up into the presence of God like sitting in the aeroplane. We rise to 30,000 feet by the strength of what the aeroplane does. We rise into the presence of God and belong to his family because of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. I'm going to read one last Bible verse and then we're going to pray. Romans 10 verse 4. Jesus Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness, right standing with God for everyone who believes. Jesus Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness, right standing with God for everyone who believes. And with the end of the law, that just happens to be the end of my talk for this morning.